You are listening to Decoding Impact, a podcast by Sattva Knowledge Institute, hosted by Ratish Balakrishnan. Welcome to Season 2 of Decoding Impact. Every fortnight, we will engage leading thinkers and practitioners to understand what it takes to solve systemic problems at scale. For all the curious change makers committed to understanding the trade-offs and incentives to make this world a better place, this one's for you. Education is often considered the Harry Potter of the social sector. Every philanthropist can recognize and relate to the value of education in improving lives. But despite significant investments, the quality of education continues to remain poor year on year. Part of the reason for the same is the way we approach the challenge. It is often easy to think of education as a technocratic problem by looking at how concepts like fractions are more difficult for a child than decimal addition, for instance. But the true tension in education today requires us to approach it as a social problem. It's about ensuring that every member of the society takes accountability for good learning outcomes. The annual status of education report, otherwise known as ASSER, sets a definitive standard in reporting the quality of learning outcomes in India. Over the years, ASSER has highlighted the increased awareness about the need for education among parents and contrasted that with the poor quality of education in this country. While everyone knows the oft-quoted statistic of the grade 5 child not reading the grade 2 text, I truly believe that ASAR is a social movement structured as a survey. So how did ASAR start and how has it evolved? What can the results over the years tell us? And what does it take to make another ASAR happen? To answer these questions and more, we are joined by Dr. Rukmini Banerjee, who has spent decades thinking about this problem. Dr. Banerjee is an accomplished educationist and the CEO of Pratham Education Foundation, India's leading NGO focused on improving the quality of education. She is an advocate for data-driven education reforms and has spearheaded development of notable large-scale assessments, including the widely recognized ASSER. Welcome to Decoding Impact, Dr. Banerjee. Great having you with us for today's podcast. Great to be here. Ma'am, I have been probably in a dozen meetings where people have said we should start the next ASAP, you know, and we should do the ASAP for gender, we should be ASAP for secondary education, etc. And for me, that is a sign of uh, the impact that the report has had on the education and more largely the social impact landscape as probably being a cornerstone of what civil society has brought together as data and evidence that has influenced the entire sector. And today's conversation, ma'am, I wanted to not only talk about the 2022 report, which I definitely would like to touch upon, but really look at the evolution of ASAR, because ASAR, as we know it today, is not the ASAR that started. And so throughout today's conversation, I thought we could divide it into three parts. One, of course, is to talk about the evolution, what has worked, why is it where it is today. To speak about the 2022 report itself, what are some of the key observations and insights, but also end with looking forward uh, at a national level, where are we going? 
with this conversation around learning outcomes in the foundational level as well. But let's begin at the beginning. It would be great to hear from you the story of how did Asar start and what were the initial ideas and how has it evolved over the years? Uh, it's great. You know, the older you get, the longer back you can go to tell stories. So, <laughs> see, Asar, a lot of people think Asar started as a national assessment and that's absolutely not the case. We were working, you know, now let's see, almost 23, 24 years ago. You know, after our first couple of years, which was largely in Bombay, a lot of our own focus was on how do you increase schooling, either from how kids can get into school. So if you had universal first standard, then you would have universal primary. So how do you get that transition to happen well? And also, how do you get children who were, you know, um, who had been uh, left out, either because parents had moved to Bombay or they never had a chance. So how do you get the left out children to come in? So we did a modification of the famous MB Foundation's bridge courses, but for an urban setting and so on. So largely preoccupied with how do you connect children to schooling? But as we were doing that, I think there was a sense in which that the visible problem, which is children out of school, was getting solved. And there was a common understanding around that. But along with that, there was a restless and a kind of a little bit more fuzzy thought that the children who were already in weren't doing quite like you would want them to do. Teachers felt that they were not able to really transact the kinds of things that they were, they were expected to do in class. And parents felt that children weren't gaining the value add that they should. So, you know, the left out problem, let's say, was very clear. But the left behind problem was being felt, I would say. And we could feel that as well. We worked both in the community as well as in the schools in uh, Mumbai at the time. And so it seemed necessary to kind of put some form or shape or understanding around that. My own belief is that because the left out problem was clearly understood, you know, there could be a very wide spectrum of people, parents, policymakers, administrators, etc., to come together to solve it. So to solve any problem, you need to sort of see the problem, feel the problem, and articulate the problem that can then be addressed. So in our own work, we slowly began to see that perhaps the place to begin that was holding things up was if you couldn't read, you couldn't really do much else. You had also difficulty in math. So a basic reading and a basic math seem to be prerequisites for moving ahead. But what do you mean by reading? I mean, people think of reading in many different ways. There are textbooks, there are other books, there are all kinds of things. We had been working in the Bombay Municipal Schools in a program called Balsakhi at the time, which was providing kind of a learning support to the children who were what at that time was called lagging behind. And we were doing that not just in Bombay, but in several other cities. And the first uh, randomized control trial that JPAL did with us, I have almost a feeling that they did it before they were even called JPAL, was to look at you know, the effectiveness of this program, learning support program in Baroda and in Bombay. And uh, during the course of that, we realized that while we were working hard and children were making progress, the way we were assessing the children, which was you know, like a normal test, a pen and paper test, wasn't quite giving us what we wanted. And the second is even with the tracking of children's progress that we could see, but there certainly was progress, but it wasn't at the level at which children needed to be if they wanted to really be on par uh, at grade level. So a combination of these things led us to say, let's just do a control or delete. I don't know, these days nobody uses those. I don't know what to do to your computer when it crashes, but in those days, at least we did a control or delete and said, let's just start again. 
because we were frustrated that we were also kind of missing something somewhere. And so a bunch of people in Pratham, you know, I think close to about 100 or more, started with fresh. And there was a combination of in-school children as well as out-of-school children, different languages. And we thought, let us try a month. And why a month? Just because a month is a useful unit of time. How if 100 people, 100 or more people are doing these groups of children, we need some common vocabulary to talk to each other with, to say, and how do we articulate what we are doing? So the idea was, let's just look at where the children are today. And all these children, we had decided were a little bit older, eight or older, class three or older. And let's uh, decide on where we want them to be. So the where we want them to be was very clear. They should be able to read a simple story and be able to engage with it, you know, read it, talk about it, uh, potentially, you know, criticize it if necessary. But then working backwards, what are the steps? And so the first step was clear that you can't even recognize any letters. Uh, the next step was you can recognize letters, but you can't read words. Third step was you can read words, but you still can't deal with sentences. And so that's how these four or five steps emerged. We didn't move to a single sentence because we could see with the work that we were doing with the kids that a set of simple connected sentences is actually a lot easier to read than one single sentence because kids get the hang of what it is about. And then they can do a little bit of guesswork and a little bit of decoding to put things together. So this now what is called the Asar tool actually emerged as a way of having a, you know, a frame within which we could talk to each other so that I could say that, Ratish, in your class, you had some, you know, 10 kids at uh, beginner and five kids at para and six kids at, uh, you know, word. And in my class, I had everybody either at beginner or letter. So our starting positions were different, but our goal was the same. We wanted at the end of this one month or whatever time period to have children reading a story with understanding. And that's how it started. And that's what held this whole experiment together. And we saw two things. One is that, you know, children did make progress because we put aside everything else, our own preconceptions and started at the level at which they were. And you can see that years later now, that whole approach is called teaching at the right level. According to us, there is no other level to teach at. You must teach at the level of the child. But there were some things that happened that we didn't expect. So this little ladder or little frame was for our own internal conversation. But that's how we went, began to talk to the parents or in some cases when it was in school to the teachers. And two or three things came out of that that we hadn't thought of. One was from parents who'd say, what are you doing exactly? So we'd say, we are trying to take your child from wherever the child is now to the story level. And the story, even if parents couldn't read, if you read out the story, it was very obvious what a story, right? So the goal of the entire exercise was visible from the simple assessment tasks that we were doing. And the way to measure progress was also inbuilt. Because, you know, you move from letter to word, from word to para, from para to story. We could see how long it took whom to make these jumps. And interestingly, all the materials we used were like that. You played word games, you played alphabet games. For easy reading, you had little booklets with four lines. And then you had stories. So really the distinction between assessment and activities wasn't there because this was all part of the same deal. And you were also able to connect to people outside to say what it is that you are doing, bring people onto this journey so they could follow your, you know, along with it as well. Now, as we were doing this and the logic of this assessment, the activity and the action sort of came together, was also a time when we began to work in rural areas. Now, at that time, largely everybody in Pratham had an urban background. 
And so when you moved in, and we could see that our own urban backgrounds were quite different. I, for example, am from Patna. I had worked in Bombay. So the Bombay setting and the Patna setting were quite different in terms of children, their composition, their starting level. But as we moved into rural areas, it was important that we should first understand what is the current context. So we began to use this simple tool. We had a similar one for math as well to do what we were calling village report cards. So you arrived in a village. Village is often too big. So you look hamlet by hamlet. And you do this little one-on-one exercise with each child. And as soon as you began to do it in the community, a lot of people would say, what are you doing? Then you would explain them. They'd say, oh, okay, I can help you. And so in a period of two or three days, along with a lot of help from the village, you were able to produce a village report card, which was really a census of schooling and learning, basic learning in the village. And then you would have a meeting, you know, in the school or in the panchayat bhavan or wherever, where the whole village would come, where you would discuss this village report card and think about what should be done next. And, you know, there, as you can imagine, a ton of stories around this. But the logic actually, of it moved from our own assessment, activity, action, and that whole circle to a village level where that began to happen. So the village then gave volunteers to help to take this circle further. And at that point, you know, the government was a new government in place, talking about not just outlays, but outcomes. Madhav, one of our founders, was in the National Advisory Council, where I suppose some of this discussion happened. And so the idea that could this, whatever you call it, this circle of action be done at a national level? Because it seemed very important, as it was with us or with the village, you need to understand the problem. You need to feel the problem. And then you need to be able to discuss the problem. And once you did that, a lot of solutions. So all this story, I would say, began around 2001. But it was only in 2005, after you know, hundreds of village report cards, sharing these kinds of uh, methods, if you may, the tool and the method with other partners, governments or whatever, that we came to uh, 2005 ourselves. And there as well, I would say that uh, the first year, I don't think we realized what we were getting into. And uh, I always say that you have to be very careful what you name yourself because Asar seemed to be a good word. It meant impact in many Indian languages. But what we didn't realize is that the word A means annual. So, you know, so that's kind of the beginning of Asar. It did, it did not start out even as an assessment tool. Forget about as a big sample study of India or anything like that. It started for a way for us to understand our own challenges and have a way of talking to each other which we then were able to, I think, quite successfully spread locally, wherever this was going to happen. So that's sort of the history of the beginnings of us. I have a lot of questions. I'm going to sort of place it uh, one by one. Um, you mentioned it's 2001 to 2005. That's about 20 years ago. Today, we are at a point where the conversation of learning outcomes seems like something everybody's, uh, you know, is, thinks is important. Government thinks it's important. Nipun Bharat is there. We're also now saying, okay, what beyond learning outcomes? So there is that conversation that's evolving. How was the scene then? Like when you made this study and then you said, hey, learning outcomes are important. You did mention that the National Advisory Council was taking cognizance of it. But across states, given education is a state subject, was there this awareness that the problem is so huge or that the problem is so important 
for people to look at and and I, again i always feel when you work on something for 20 years you have the benefit of accrued value over years it'll be great to see what was the scene then and how has it evolved in terms of the importance of the issue that is being discussed no so i would say that you know the scene year 2005 uh, the central at that point it was called the ministry of human resource development also commissioned a enrollment study you know what the uh, enrollment patterns were and that was a urban and a rural study asar was rural but the numbers from asar for the rural uh, districts matched very closely to the enrollment numbers that came from a third party but also a household survey so at one level there was that credibility that the numbers that were coming out were not you know dramatically different people had not thought about testing learning or whatever in that way even at that time it was early days of the national achievement survey that was done for third upwards and it was done as it is done today as well at a kind of a grade level or at a you know at a level which is not very basic level you know three you even then there was a third and a fifth and an eighth and the idea was that you're tracking progress across these grades very interesting sets of reactors a couple of things about the architecture i think that we had probably you know because of the large number of experiences at village level i think some of our metrics and methods were bang on on the spot and often when you work things from the ground up you tend to be more solid than if you you know just sat with statisticians and you know did this so right from the beginning asar was done by a local organization in that district so i think that was an important one you had to find these local organizations we had no money to give them other than maybe a little bit of money just to go to the village and come back the sampling would use census lists so that's something that we still do and i think the simplicity of the tool really helped in both and we knew that that it helped us to understand things it helped people at the village level to understand things and it helped up and down the system there was no mystery about what this assessment is it was what is what you see is what you get so these have been very key features i think in the way and i think the final thing was that you know i mean although people may have interpreted it differently it was really an effort to say as a citizen of india i have a role to play in the development of my country and so if i understand where are we with schooling and where are we with learning and i'm a local person then maybe i can contribute as well in you know taking this forward we knew from other things at pratham that you know you do a district here and there it doesn't have that impact so the idea was to do all of india at one time and do it in a way that could have a national and a state and a district all available at the same time the timing was important the agreement to assert within pratham i remember it was october 2nd and it happened to be a holiday but it happened to be a very significant holiday as well you know we were phone calls were made to all our state teams to say if we were to go to go ahead and do this what do you think and you know everybody was 20 years younger and said absolutely do it immediately so in the first year we were able to reach 475 districts and the timing of this was fixed that in, even if though it was 2nd october we would come out with this report before 26th january because a people get preoccupied with 26th january then the budget etc gets formalized so we wanted to have data for that year available in that year itself so that you could plan for the next year i think these features also helped a lot now in terms of your reactions from different states there were wide wide difference there was one state in which when the results were presented there was almost like we thought people will come 
you know maramari ho jayegi because the government people said give us the names of every child and every village this can't be true i remember a conversation in up where the up you know secretary or whatever state project director whoever the senior person was had the report in front of him and i was talking to him and he picked up the phone and called his counterpart in tamil nadu so i couldn't hear what uh, the tamil nadu guy was saying but what this guy was saying was that you know i can believe my results for up because the enrollment numbers match pretty closely but ye learning you know up i i realized can be very poor but tamil nadu which has very high enrollment how can it have these kinds of results for learning so number one and i remember this conversation very distinctly he said we are following in the tamil nadu pathway you got your infrastructure in place you got your teachers you got your textbooks and now learning will rise but if that's not the case then who should i follow and they ended the conversation by saying either these guys are completely wrong pointing to me or we have something really major to worry about and i have to give credit to up they actually embarked immediately on a conversation to say what to do next what do you think looking at these results and i can i can talk about that a little bit later year on year doing it year on year also we realized after a couple of years was important because people changed their minds the same government who had come to fisticuffs couple of years later said we are doing an internal evaluation of our learning outcomes will assert come and verify that we are doing the right thing so you know if it's your own country and your own effort and you know you have no deadline in mind then i think it gives lots of room for people to change their minds to feel differently i mean once one standard thing and this is on a slightly lighter note several state governments say is saal result hamara acha hai to aapke sath photo le lete hain agle saal kharab aayega to we will say ki sampling is wrong so that's kind of like what should happen in a large joint family you disagree sometimes sometimes you go to court on land and sometimes you know you intermarry you now all of these things are possible so i would say that the understanding that this learning was very key happened over a period of time and sometimes to me these days it's very surprising how people are just us you know it took 10 years to accept and then there was always a division you know people say what did the government but there is no the government so at the central level there was the uh, ministry of human resource development there was the finance ministry you know they had different views on asr because the finance ministry thought this outlays to outcome was very important they would feature asr in the economic survey for many years the ministry of human resource development naturally felt this was a bit of an attack on what they were doing but at a personal level i think nobody ignored us you either liked it or you hated it it was very difficult to be neutral and the fact that predictably year on year it was always coming out in that middle of january week also i think established a certain what shall i say you know a long run presence on something like this people don't uh, by the way uh, debate the results even today then that happens today but we know that see i feel like something like the asr report whether at the village level with a report card or with the national level or state level it's an occasion to talk i don't have cuz i'm at home i don't have my purse with me i have the asr tool in that every day i don't know what conversation i am in the tool comes out and it is featured in some part of my conversation so opportunity to talk to anybody at the bus stop in the auto in the planning commission in the niti aayog in the state government i mean we it's a wonderful way to have something that you can talk to <laughs> there's one thing i wanted to ask you which is looking back what has made it successful 
And throughout many conversations, I have actually gleaned a few. So I want to first share them so that you can build on top of it. A couple of things that you rightly said, which is simplicity. To actually have a tool which everybody can understand, I think is itself something that's very, very uh, relevant because I've been part of assessments that take one and a half hours per child. And so there's no way you can do this at national scale. The second is, and this is something Aditya Nataraj from Kaivalya Education Foundation spoke to me multiple times about because I'm an engineer. So I always look at technocratic solutions. And he always used to say, Asar was a movement. I mean, and you talked about it as well. Everybody came and became a part of it. It wasn't like a three sort of people, bureaucrats coming or doing conversations. It's literally that the village sort of joined forces to be able to be part of that. So that movement approach to things where everybody sort of felt part of it in some form, I think is important. The third thing that came up, uh, you know, when I was talking to one of your colleagues also is that the results made sense for a parent. Not in a way that you had to write a 25-page report, but in a way the mother sees the child read. The mother already knew the results made sense to her and the father realized it made sense to her. That way, the loop wasn't closed at the highest level. It made closed loop in every level, which I thought was very, very important. And for, for the kind of results you had, no one's questioned the rigor of Asa. And it's very easy to take simple tools and say it's too simple, so it must be wrong. You know, but while people might agree, disagree, etc., but everyone said that this is a rigorous tool and people have replicated it. And hence the focus on rigor. And I know sampling for you, the way you approach door to door, how you turn, etc., there's a lot of rigor that goes into the design and execution as well. And finally, the fact that the numbers in the end, however much the survey is long, the result is a quotable result. The grade five child, grade two text, like every education nonprofit organization, every education startup starts with the Asar result saying, here is why I exist, because this is the problem we are solving. For me, these are things I gleaned from many conversations. But when you look at it, what are some others that you would say have really contributed to the success of Asar? Success or failure, I don't know. But the persistent presence, I think, is something that, you know, we are also sometimes sort of taken aback by. That most things in 20 years, you outgrow, you know, but uh, this still seems to be relevant. But I think that often Asar is looked at as data. I like to think of it as an experience. An experience that connects you as an Indian to India. <laughs> I don't think we have enough of those which brings the whole country together. So even starting from the first one, you know, for whom is this being done? It is being done for you and me and for my neighbors and everyone else, right? I, I remember even in the village report card days, Sarpanch would say, you know, we tell the Sarpanch or the Pradhan, whatever, that we are going to go do this. And when, when the actual one piece of paper was done, the Sarpanch would say, where should I sign? And I'd say, nowhere. He said, you don't know because uh, the data always goes up. It's the only thing in the world that defies gravity, right? And we'd say, but So data we never collect because it's one old lady in the village. And I often quote this story. And I, it's getting even more important now that my own hair is white. She was watching what we were doing in the village. And she said to me, So I was in a hurry and I said, survey kar. So she started laughing. So then I stopped and I said, why are you laughing? She said, survey is that, that you people don't know and we have to tell you. You know, se log aate hai, bahar se log aate hai, they ask, some question, what is your income, where is your water, all the kind of stuff. And so we have to tell them because they don't know what But this is what you are doing. This is what we don't know, you are Illiterate elderly woman in the village who had just been observing us. And she comes back to my mind 
that this is something that we are uncovering together. If we don't build a common understanding, and people debate, but I think that this uncovering together is, and it's not like we planned it like this, but I think in the doing of it, we've learned that uncovering together, debating together, the together part is very important. We have a society where certain parts are moving ahead more rapidly than others. This view of not just my child, but all the children in the hamlet, the hamlet, the aggregate, you actually know all the individuals. By the time you get to a village level, it's an aggregate. So that, you know, what is the aggregate? What is the individual? Where am I in this aggregate? Do I have a role to play? And, you know, over and over again, I mean, Asir has been going on now, what, uh, almost 20 years. Every Asir, no matter which district in the country you go to, I find that the, it's usually young people, usually students. And how many college students have never been anywhere? They've been to college. They've been to home, they've been to market, they've been to relatives' homes. And this adventure that I will get a name of a village in my district, I've had people come. I remember we were doing training once in a district in UP and I was staying there at night in the district, in the village. And uh, there was a knock on the door late at night and two girls came who had been in the train. Very hesitantly, they said, Ki, ma'am, uh, because you're a lady, you can talk a little bit. I'm scared so I said, are you scared about like getting there? Because they said, so we know how to go by bus and all. But Anjan So I said, you go home. By the way, Anjan Loga are easier. Family members are much more tough. You go home, take the most khadus person in your family and do the test of They came back the next night and said, full day ki training utni useful last input because this, you know, I want to go out. I want to see my district. I want to see my country. I have no idea. So many times, you know, in Kashmir or in the Northeast, uh, kids will say, is India like this? Now, if this was an opportunity, instead of calling it Asar, if we called it See India, I, my own belief is at a young age, if you participate in productive experience that we do together, I really feel a lot of our problems would be lower, that you would respect. You know, you go into a village. It happens to me still. I get little butterflies in the morning. Then same thing as those two girls. By the end of the day, there are people are saying, Mere ghar mein chai piyo, why are you going away? Stay the night, blah, blah, blah. This hamdardi, you know, this feeling of hum hai, we are all pretty similar, is a very simple but a powerful feeling. And so I think these are some of the things that underlie us. Today, like this year, the 2022 report was disseminated very widely. We made a big effort because it was after four years to do district-level dissemination. The number of district officials, whether the collector or the district education officer, who in their college days had done ASAR, was phenomenally high because it's that generational thing. So these are just my own favorite. And, you know, everything is, uh, everything is put up, you know, it's open. So we have no idea actually how many people use the ASSER tool and we hope they use it as simply as we do and not complicated. But it's not ours. It is there for anyone to use. You know, when these days we throw the word public good very loosely on very many things, digital public goods, etc. But ASSER is truly a public good. Is something that is created for by the people, and I think that actually is a huge value. And and I I, st- I still find that remarkable. <laughs> Twenty twenty two, we reached out a lot, and I think I pressurized a lot of people 
my own family around september doesn't take my phone calls like 10 villages whatever but you know again the it is the local level very often we had petrol pump dealer would say iske liye petrol le or a printer who will say print kar dete hain so you know and frankly nobody funds it in money term but 30000 people give their time monetize that would be huge right i want to go to the 2022 result but i want to say two things before i go one this idea of socially understanding what we are doing in educational interventions i feel is a losing art or a science i don't know if you feel that way i think we are becoming a lot more technocratic about our interventions but this ability to say how do we bring everybody along how do we get people to be part of the solution i think is becoming especially in education now something that not many entrepreneurs were coming in understand cognitively i mean understand instinctively as well and i think i mean so as people are listening to this and i'm going to sort of push this to everybody i know to say how do we integrate this thinking because this uh, you know i often talk about this idea that gandhi ji really made indian freedom struggle a participative movement not because we needed the people but because then people became part of the solution so you know burn your clothes take that salt uh, you know do that thing because then you're not listening to somebody sitting in delhi telling you what is independence we like you recognize that it is independence and that changes the way you look at how you see yourself as part of the solution i mean gandhi ji is not incidental the october 2 may have been a holiday in which we could have called people we are very inspired by that simplicity of bringing people together you know while the education reforms and all of this is becoming more technocratic and dashboards and metrics and you know all kinds of things this year and i wanted to and i hope whoever is listening will listen to this part more carefully we took the asa report and we looked at it and we know that the country is focusing a big deal uh, in a big way education departments consulting companies people who are in teaching learning on the first three grades you know foundational literacy numeracy and my question also has been that, that is absolutely necessary and needs to be done what what about the other kids their learning levels were low before covid it fell a little bit during covid and what about them right so in disseminating the asar report we often asked district level people institution officer whoever we met ki kya kare but didn't leave it that open we said one thing we feel which is low hanging fruit is kids who are going from 5th to 6th they lost two years they gained one year last year was a continuous year but they need need a little push and they are old enough ki ek mahine mein bahut farak ho sakta hai across the board people said good idea garmi ka chutti one push there is time during you know whether you are government or non government so we picked three states three hindi speaking states whose results we looked at in asar and we could see that this one push even on our data would take them to a level where they could maybe fuel themselves and we appealed widely to say if you are 10 or above can you help 10 15 kids in your village today's count in up is a lakh at 10000 volume there's no money involved bihar is heading from yesterday's number was 60 something thousand madhya pradesh is 50 something thousand and i think part of this is because part of this whole deal was that you also upload your you know what you're doing on the on a portal which may be taking more time even more interestingly in two of these states bihar and madhya pradesh the government has come on full swing so a government supporting a voluntary movement I mean, the government saying "jan bhagidari karo," we can understand. But in both cases, completely without those coming in place, government saying, "Can we use our resources 
to bring people on board in Bihar. And I'm not saying this only because I think Bihar is the best state in the world because I'm from there. The skill development mission has come on board. Jivika, which is their big rural livelihoods mission, has come on board. The NCC has come on board. They have a department of mass education, which has these what they call Tola Sevak, Shiksha Sevak. I mean, anybody and everybody has come on board to say, Itna to hum kari And again, it's the simplicity. One month, children going from fifth to sixth, you know, it appeals to the goodness in you. And one and a half hours a day for one month, almost anybody can give. I think we don't make these appeals enough. We make yeah. complicated. We think people are things have to go through some very complex convergence process. Some processes converge if they make sense, you know. So yeah. I am very energized. In fact, one of the reasons we are doing the podcast today is for the next two weeks, I'm going to be on the road. Because, and when you ask young people, why are you doing this? And they often turn around and say, why not? Because if you reach 10, you're the success. So 10 or half of them are your cousins. Why not? One more thing. I think people like being part of big things. But I'm not like some outstanding teacher who's doing my own thing. Like me, there are one lakh others in UP. Does give a you know feeling that I'm part of something big. But I'm doing my own thing. You know? I think one, it is a significant report in the context of what has happened in the last few years, which is really one of the worst impacts that we have in education in terms of external disruption. And a lot of what we are seeing are explained as the impact of the pandemic, which it might be. There has been a significant loss in learning. Your number shows us that compared to even 2019, our numbers this, uh, you know, in the current report are worse. And two is people moving to from private schools to public schools. It is seen as an economic reality and saying that you know they, they just couldn't pay the fees and most private schools shut down because they are themselves not as financially sustainable. But it'll be great to get more color on some of these, both the loss of learning outcomes and the shift to government schools across the country. So I think the shift to government schools, we have to watch and wait and see. We are economic barometer. And I've been reading with great interest, you know, other studies that are coming out. For example, I think there was a paper that Raghuram Rajan wrote recently, which talked about luxury car sales are up. Middle class sedan types are kind of steady. But the two-wheeler sales are down. Now, you know, I think some of these are correlates of a slower recovery, perhaps in certain parts of our economy and so on. But I also think we should not underestimate what the government did during COVID. Because if you were in a government school, across the board, we did a couple of phone surveys in that period. Because we had our sampling frame from 2018, we collect phone numbers from families because we do cross-check and verification. So we had a 2018 sampling frame that we could go back to. I think government school kids got textbooks, which private school kids did not. They often got rations. They had teachers who were, you know, still on payroll. So they, they had many teachers reached out and so on. So I would say that the combination of that plus a big push on FLN, which you can see in terms of materials, in terms of improvement. So there is, it's not just a, push. I think there may be partly a pull as well, but we have to wait and see, you know, to what extent this mirrors what kind of economic recovery, or is it really a school being able to, you know, attract. Again, if I go back to UP, UP is one of the states where learning did not fall. Why did it not fall? You know, Asa does not have an answer. But the couple of years preceding, a lot of things have started happening in UP to shore up you know, physical infrastructure, some big catch-up efforts, 
uh, you know, various things. I think so. Whether it's a push or pull on enrollment, we'll have to wait and see. On the learning front, you know, I, at some level, I think COVID was a, I don't know what the right word is. It gave the right opportunity to talk about learning when people paid attention. If you look at the 10-year, 15-year stretch, and if, you were, if your eyesight is slightly bad and you see the 10-year graph from a distance, there is ups and downs, okay? And the COVID one is quite down. So what people, I think, I don't know to what extent they accepted the situation was very worrying before. COVID gave us an opportunity to talk about the COVID time, but also look back and say that we weren't doing that well earlier. Okay. And so, you know, between 18 and 22, there are three periods. 18 to 20, when it was business as usual, 20 to almost 22, when business completely not as usual, and then maybe a couple of months. Because last year, we had long summer vacations because of the heat, uh, when you kind of came back. So the 18 to 22 difference is a mixture of all of this. If you look at Chhattisgarh, Chhattisgarh government commissioned an asset in 21. And they asked us to double the sample size because they wanted district level estimate. In Chhattisgarh, you see 18 to 20, big drop, and 18 to 21, a big drop. 21 to 22, an increase, which is as large as the increase that they had managed to do in the six years previous. So again, you know, because the tool is simple, because you can move fast, there is a lot of dynamism that is going on. Some of it you can't see unless there is availability of data. One thing about 2022 I want to say, and this is, uh, I'm going to try this out on you and on your listeners. And if people don't agree, they should write back to you and you can tell me. If I look at grade three, standard three, last 10 years, from 2012 till 2022, by and large for India, and you can do the same for every state, by and large for India, and if I take the ASAR's highest level in reading, story level, the second grade level text, and if I take subtraction, two-digit subtraction with borrowing, which is again a second standard, by and large in standard three, India has not gone beyond 30% in the last 10, which means that 70 plus percent kids are left behind before you can, I mean, in the first three years of school, which is a, I mean, the loss of potential here you can imagine. And it's only that 30% or less that moves forward into the school system for which we are all turning ourselves backwards, helping them to do their exams well, get them into college, blah, blah, blah. So that's the reality. So Nipun Bharat or FLN or whatever has to take this number, which after COVID has gone below 25, right? But it was already around 27. I mean, it's not like it was high anyway. We have to take it in the next five years to as close to 100 as we can. That's one gap. But if I look at this grade three a little bit more closely, the 2022 standard three does not look dramatically different from all the other standard threes. But behind it, all the other standard threes, 12, 14, 16, 18, had three years of schooling in school, being given by you know, teachers and materials and whatnot. The 2022 standard three has had few months of school. They, were, they should have been in standard two in 21. And they should have been in class one and 20. They didn't have that. So that 25% is actually what family and community has done. And the previous 27% is what schools can do. Now, I may be being very simplistic, but if I put the two together, Nippon Bharat can be at 50%. <laughs> we recognize that we are all players in the same game and we get our act together. We don't keep parents out. We welcome them in. And that's one of the things that COVID has to everybody you know parents are a big force in this and they've shown that they can do it 
So I feel like the 2022 results should be looked at for the younger children as parental contribution, community contribution, and older children as their own contribution or their sibling contribution. I have four very meta fundamental education questions for you after what you said, but I want to come to it later because I think the foundational literacy piece and the point you just made around how to make foundation literacy work, I think is an important point. So I want to take that a little further and then maybe close with those four meta questions, even short answers for me would be great. One of my theories, uh, ma'am, I think that I've been now convinced about is it needs a set of compassionate adults around a child to make a child learn. Which is, and this is story of my life, story of my son's life, which is that I can't provide academic input all the time. My mom, my mom actually, she has, she has only one eye. She never barely managed 10th standard, etc. But the fact that she sat every evening and made sure that I finished homework got me through education. And so I often wonder how we underestimate the value of compassionate adults at home who don't have to be academically brilliant, but just the fact that they commit to the learning process of the child actually makes a big difference. And what you said sort of makes, you know, for me, resonates deeply. And as we look at Nippon Bharat and what we have to do and look, look, having looked at the data over the years, what are some tangible recommendations that you would make that we should totally keep in mind as many organizations have now started working on FLM given government's push on that area? I mean, as Pratham, I think our contribution to these early grades, early childhood is bring families in in a big way. Remember that the mothers of children who are aged three to eight are the beneficiaries of universalization of elementary. They have years of schooling. They are more savvy. And for a whole variety of reasons, India has very low female labor force participation. So they are tied to home. They have high aspirations for their children. They have greater capability for themselves. And therefore, at least in Pratham, everywhere, wherever we can operate, Bringing mothers on board in a big way to engage directly with children's learning is something that we are doing. And a second thing that we are doing, which is from observing what's in our landscape, is that India has been very successful in structuring women's groups, microfinance, self-help groups. So that is also not a foreign formulation that women come together in their hamlet to certain things. So I would say that these mothers' groups and mothers' engagement, and not because fathers are not important, but often fathers are away for weeks or months or even the day. That is certainly that, you know, we must. And, you know, I, I, I kind of even quantitatively, I feel like if you add what I was saying about grade three, it can have a huge boost. The second thing is we should recognize that in the past eight years, there has been slow progress. But if we need a huge big jump, you have to do things completely different. If business as usual, better training, better material, better stronger growth. You have to think is what is the big jump? So according to me, the big jump can be bring the parents, put the teachers, put them together, big jump or something else, right? Now, the government, I think, recognizes some of this. So the national curriculum framework for the foundational stage has been released. And if you go through it, it is a little bit different from what usually has been. But I think this instructional patterns, what is our business as usual instructional patterns have to be put aside. I was talking to a group of... uh, Block level people in UP. Uh, UP is uh, organizing, for example, they want 100 blocks to be Nippon blocks sooner than the others. They're giving a lot of extra uh, emphasis to these block teams, team building, motivation, and so on. And I was talking to about 50, 60 of them uh, last week. And I said that, you know, frankly, the future of UP is in your hands. Because no matter what the frameworks are and what the materials are, they are hanging far up in the air. The teacher is a 
peace in all of this. She can't, unless every teacher becomes superbly enlightened and starts doing something totally different. But you have 20 schools, 15 schools under you. So one, I mean, and I said, even then it's very simple. And I'm, I, what I said is what I do myself. So I can't say to you to do something else that I don't do. Every class I go to, do I enjoy being with kids? Do I learn something from them? Do I take that learning into the next class? Because kids can tell you a lot if you watch them closely. And so if you enjoy kids, if you see that the kids that you're interacting with are making progress, UP is all set. It doesn't matter what is on the dashboard or what is not on the dashboard. Okay, This is what the entire interaction with children on learning in the classroom has to be different. Everyone has to feel that there is a different air and we are on a different path. And so, you know, in some ways, I feel like I hope that this realizes, and that's what the techno-managerial approach worries me, because it's a very top-down approach. Take my 356-page manual and please do every day properly. Well, no, because my every day is all fortgeport, you know. Tell me a goal that I have to reach in a month or in a fortnight. And if I can't do it, help me. <laughs> Launching these things, you know, I don't see your numbers on the dashboard. Well, you know, too bad. I was busy with the kids. I think you need a, and I feel like Manish Sodia in his book, I hope he's writing a second book. But one of the things he says is that, you no, know, shikshaka manvi karan ki You need to humanize the whole thing. Kids are human beings. They want to feel that they are making progress. When a kid makes progress, when you came first in your class or whatever you did, your mother felt that all her efforts were worth it. So, you know, and these little small things, a kid learning to read is like a kid learning to swim, a kid learning to ride a bike. Everybody takes pleasure in it. So how do we bring in I mean, I don't know. Maybe you should convene a group of uh, technical experts and be saying, you know, do you enjoy being with kids in the classroom? If not, move up. Because the whole edifice needs to be built from there. And, you know, at that age, it's easy to have fun. You know, it's much more difficult in ninth standard to have fun because now you have calculus and this, that and the other hanging over your head. Here, it's words and letters and stories and numbers and they can fall from the sky. And it is the funnest age of all. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking that a happy child is an outcome everybody can stand behind. It is very hard. You might disagree on other things, who has to come to power, who has to win elections. You can't disagree with the idea that we need a happy child. Videos of these kids, this, you know, when, when we do this learning to read or teaching at the right level, you take a video of a child who's beginning to read letters. They don't, and they are like eight years old. They don't meet you in the eye. They're tougher. They're looking here and there. By the time they're reading stories, the backbone is straight, the voice is clear, eyes in your eyes. So it's not only reading. It is a self-confidence in myself that I can do it. And that self-confidence is very infectious for all the adults around to feel that, you know, this is all worth it. I'm this kid in a candy store now. I have so many questions. I have very limited time. So I'm going to ask you three questions. You can pick any one of them, go deeper or answer all the questions. But some of them are meta. One is, um, there is this large debate on should government run schools or should government regulate education? Because state capacity in this country to do everyday work is poor. Like I, I constantly, when I work with uh, civil service uh, professionals, recognize they can pull off the impossible very easily. But the everyday one, you know, the system sort of struggles in. So there is this constant debate on should government actually just run schools at all or should just government regulate education and do that really well or provide the funding 
you've seen this now over 20 years and you know when you talked about covid and people moving to government schools that was a question that came to my mind saying what is this you know what should be the role of government in the long run you know maybe not in this year not next year but over a period of time that was one question the second question that i was thinking again as you were talking is we look at covid and the short term blip but as you were speaking you talked about how schools were closed because of air quality in delhi for example there are schools getting closed because of floods and i constantly wonder if this conversation on the fact that disasters are becoming recurrent is part of our thinking around how do we look at education and is that something i mean it seems like an external factor but is that something that we should think about saying that frequent school closures for many reasons for floods for you know air quality etc going to happen more often which sort of reinforces the role of the parent and the community because you know it's not a one time thing that's going to happen so this intersection of climate change and or climate change in general uh, and education is that something that you think needs more thought in the light of what we just discussed around parents and so on as well i think that's the other part and the third thing and you talked about up right in the beginning and i said we'll come to it in the end are there things that state governments are doing that you feel is extremely good that you think should be replicated you know even in passing you mentioned how up's numbers didn't go down during covid uh, you talked about what chatisgarh did if there are examples of what states have done which you think you can highlight and again i know limited time but would be great so those are my three questions i want to so very quickly and i am like that as well i want to taste every candy that is there in the store i think rather than role of government is how to be run our schools number one is one size fits all does not work in india we have huge variations even in the same state how can you have a framework for action that allows you to be flexible but decent like you know why is there a distrust of decentralization maybe decentralization your district level or block i don't know but some level at which if you give a goal and give an achievable goal provide the resources let people lose and have some kind of a way in which progress can be tracked in a constructive way now private schools if you control for say parental education actually don't do that well at least in the large part of the low cost private so it's not like private schools are doing an amazing job or anything like that. it's what does it take to run schools that can achieve goals what kind of support is needed what kind of you know i think that is the critical thing to figure out and i you know you come across younger and very energetic district level people and if you were to say don't try this for all 600 700 districts say 100 districts go for it let's learn i think we could learn disasters or school closures i mean people are now fixated on climate change and you know floods and so on we have some very predictable education disaster elections is one census is another one these can be planned these keep schools closed or keep schools at half mast for an extended period of time. why do we have a year long why do you need to be in class three for a whole year i've never understood i mean just because it's a convenient thing and your school uniform can be made once a year or what because i think that even in a normal time there is a monsoon time july to october where often you know very heavy rain or floods happen so assam should not plan to achieve too much in that period because you know floods then there is a diwali to holi period which is generally a good period uh, as long as you don't have elections in that time i mean if i i want to write to the parliament and say please can you have your elections in may and june do it in the summer holidays it's a bit hot but it doesn't touch other people that the kids can have a full school year when it happens so i think two things one is the predictable school closures or schools running at half mast can be planned better we can have seasonal you know you can have units which say i mean you know fancy universities have quarters and semesters why does our school system have to have a whole year you could have things which are you know in that, so that if you miss one one quarter is bad 
you know, you need to get in, you know, so many quarters in so many years and you can accelerate a bit or something like that. Uh, and then that will take care of, you know, an automatic mechanism that gets into place when schools are closed for any period of time. And finally, I think that, you know, I don't know about what state governments are doing and where it can be replicated, but certainly some things. For example, this, I think that this real welcoming of volunteers to help, you know, more people need to try it. And more people need to try it in a way that, for example, in Bihar, panchayats are taking charge and saying, Bacha to hamare hai, school to hamare hai. You don't give other people an opportunity to say, Ki, come on board, right? And it can't all be done through committees and, you know, whatever, task forces. Maharashtra, for example, and I'm quoting the example, which I know because we have some work with them. There may be others which I don't know because we're not working with them has taken this mother's business on full blow. Every government school in Maharashtra has mother's groups by Hamlet who do a whole period in the summer of school readiness. There are two melas run by the, I mean, organized by the government, but run by the mothers who say that by the time my child enters school after the summer holidays, my child will be ready along a whole breadth of skills. And activities for those are being practiced. And through the year, these mothers' groups are kept connected through, you know, virtual means, real means, whatever it means. So I think there are these things, but you need to look at the effectiveness. You know, I may I may have a great idea and I may be trying it out, but I also need to have something that says, you know, is it going according to what I want? Because engagement can be very heady. Engagement leading to impact of all kinds, but including of the children's learning kind, needs to be looked at closely, but in a simple way. That can be shared and discussed and moved. You move on. I have so many more things I want to ask. I want to talk to you about social emotional learning. I want to talk to you about technology and enabling parents. I want to talk. But ma'am, thank you so much. I think I always worry about reports because they abstract real people to numbers. And then it becomes a statistic and the statistics becomes inhuman. And that sort of gets dehumanized as it gets bandied about everywhere. But in today's conversation, we made it about the child at the center. I mean, for me, this image, and again, as a parent, it's very hard to not have that. The image of a happy child at the center of everything we do, you know, uh, the child that is sitting erect and meeting you in the eye. That's, that's the image around which so many people can come together. I often get asked why, despite so much money being spent on education, education is the Harry Potter of the social sector. Everybody loves it. Everybody puts money in it. Why don't we get outcomes? And exactly today, what, are, what all we discussed with this, can we decentralize? Move it closer to the context rather than put a one-size-fits-all model. Can we evoke constructive action from different parts of the community? Can we create more owners who own the problem than just a few people sitting in Delhi? Can we get mothers involved? Can we uh, make sure that they recognize the value of education they are getting? And all of these are super, uh, you know, principles for us to approach this. Uh, it's been a super valuable conversation. I really hope every entrepreneur and a budding entrepreneur is thinking about education is actually listening to this conversation. Because I think the point is, education is not a technical problem. It's a social problem. And I think that was extremely important for us to cover. Again, I know you're very busy. Thank you so much for making the time. It was such a pleasure talking to you. No, no, I'm not that busy. Hope to meet you again. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us here on Decoding Impact. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and the conversation with our expert. To learn more about Satwa Knowledge Institute and our evidence-based insights, Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram and explore our content on our website all linked in the description.